boys and girls, welcome back to Coast Access Radio Storytime. Today we're continuing with The Ghost House by New Zealand writer Bill Nagelkirk. Will David go back to the old house? And if he does, what will he discover? Let's find out. Chapter 7 Brendan calls around unexpectedly that evening. It's still light, but David is almost asleep on the sofa when the team captain arrives. Mum's hands, David, a mask. She points to Brendan's face. Whoops, sorry, Brendan says, fumbling in his pocket. His mask is a cloth one patterned with cricket bats and balls. David desperately wishes he had one as cool as Brendan's, but he knows his mum wouldn't approve. Ever since he got sick, she spent hundreds of hours trawling through the internet for information, and she says cloth masks don't make the cut anymore. Won't stay long, bro, Brendan says. Just come to bowl you a fast one. Could have done with you being there today. Just two runs in it, and we would have won. Couldn't have helped you win from the sidelines, says David. Yes, you could have. An extra cheer, a bit of a rack up when Johnny almost got run out. You know, it all would have helped. I guess, if you say so. I do. Next week then, says Brendan. Be there, man. Don't pack another sad. Okay, says David. I will. Be there, I mean. Legend, says Brendan. Side lines only, Dad says. David nods. Reckon you'll be playing again soon, says Brendan. He wishes, Ember says, coming into the room. Hiya, Brendan says to her. Hi. David sees the look that passes between them. I reckon I will be, he says, in answer to Brendan's question. Dad shakes his head, opens his mouth to speak, but says nothing. But not as soon as I'd like to, David finishes. Mum and Dad have planned for family time on Sunday, so they can do the sort of things normal, everyday families do. After all, Mum says, we're still just a normal family. What's normal? David wonders, not for the first time. They could walk into the red zone, but instead they go to New Brighton Beach. They eat ice creams, borrow books from the beachside library, and sit at one of the library's picture windows, watching the waves roll in. Look at that, says Dad, leaping up so quickly that his mask slips between his nose. He hurriedly readjusts it. People arriving on the beach with kites. It's not long at all before the air is swarming with them, multicoloured and of various shapes and sizes. I wish I'd known, he says. We could have joined in the fun. They've heard about the squillions of times Dad flew homemade kites with Grandad. Boy, you only realise the power of the wind when it's pulling at your kite string, he's told them. Once it was so strong, it tugged the kite right out of my hands. Never discovered where it ended up. There's somebody selling kites, Amber says. Are they really? Where? Yes, you're right. Come on, let's go and buy some. Was it worth it? Mum begins to say, but Dad is already sprinting for the exit. I bet the grin he's got on will have split his face mask by the time he gets outside, says David, but behind their masks, he suspects they're all smiling too. They quickly deposit their library books on the car. The kites for sale are only the small, traditional, diamond-shaped ones, but they're cheap. Dad buys them one each. A family that kites together stays together, he says. Amber rolls her eyes at David. That doesn't stop her taking ages to choose a colour. 
When the wind pulls Dad's kite from his hands and sends it flying solo, they fall about laughing and almost lose their own diamonds. Another one that's got away from you, says Amber. Mum offers to share her kite with Dad. He accepts. It looks awkward, their two pairs of hands holding the one string, but neither of them seems to mind. The three kites are rags and tatters by the time they finish. They'll never fly again. But what does it matter? It's the most fun they've had together for ages. They finish the day with bottles of chips. David doesn't even mind when Amber, who finishes her portion first, dips her licked and salty fingers into his. Somehow, a feeling of normal is created, generating a promise of more days like this to come. Chapter 8 On Monday, David revisits the ghost house. Mum and Dad have both left early for work. David and Amber face off against each other over the breakfast table. You still haven't remembered? Amber says. Remembered what? says David. I haven't got a clue what you're on about. No, of course you haven't. Typically selfish and self-centred of you. The holiday programme at the library. Holiday programme? Aren't you a bit old for library holiday programmes? I'm helping present one this morning. You promised you'd come along. Oh, did I? Yes, you did. The one thing that matters to me that I've managed to keep up with. My writing group. At the library. Performing our poems. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. That. Honestly, I did forget. Not too late, Amber says. David's torn between doing what he's promised, but forgotten about, and doing what he's decided on since, what he would rather do. His face clearly betrays his true feelings. Amber slams her cereal spoon into her bowl, scoops the bowl up with one hand, and leaves the table. I should drag you down there by your ears, she says, so Mum and Dad don't get the blame for leaving you home alone. But the truth is, if you don't want to come, then I don't want you there either. Her words from Saturday come back to David. Why is everything about you all the time? She's absolutely right. He is being selfish. Yet, being that way right now feels out of his control. He wants to go back to the house. Needs to. There's something about the place that makes it too compelling to leave alone. The way it speaks to him. Demanding his attention. It has insinuated itself inside his head. David just didn't realise, until now, how strong that compulsion is. It's pulling him in. He offers to wash and dry the breakfast dishes so his sister can prepare herself for the reading at the library. A kind of peace offering. Amber lets him get on with it. She sifts through a folder of A4 pages, printed with a selection of her poems, shuffles them into a preferred order, reads them through, her lips moving silently, as she mouths the lines. Amber loves words, thinks David, words and writing and learning in general. She attracts miscellaneous facts like a magnet, like the one about her name. Amber is always telling people about it. Mum and Dad chose Amber because when she was born, her hair was honey-coloured. Amber, Amber tells everyone, is actually fossilised tree resin, 
a bit like Harry Gum, but from the other side of the world. It has magnetic properties. When rubbed, it produces static electricity and behaves like a weak magnet. Amber demonstrates this with her amber earrings, a present for her 13th birthday. The ancient Greek word for amber was electron, she says. It's where we get our word electricity from. Amber always finishes her spiel with this final fact, leaving her listeners either very impressed or overwhelmed or possibly even bored. David has often thought it would be good to have a name with a story attached. Your poems are really sick, he ventures, reaching for another plate to dry and wishing for the millionth time they had a dishwasher, like everyone else. People always enjoy hearing them, It'd be awesome if they got published someday. But when he turns around from the dish rack, Amber is already gone. She's left him talking to the ear. Chapter 9 David does want to see the ghost house again, but what if the ghost house, feeling even more battered and bruised after being pelted with stones on Saturday, doesn't want to see him? It may have moved itself away, from its circle of trees and shrubs and found somewhere more desirable to settle down. Whatever he decides, staying in this house or paying a call to the other one, his parents are going to blow up if they find out he's been by himself. He makes up his mind at last and sets off, cell phone pushed into his back pocket. This time he doesn't forget to unpeel a fresh mask from the box that's standing guard by the door. It still amazes him that the red zone literally begins across the road from his house and up until now he's ignored it. As far as David is concerned, going out and exploring the red zone is not exactly the right word for what he's about to do. He's given some thought to this. The world is a place he needs to get used to being in again. The red zone is not only seemingly empty, But more importantly, it's unencumbered, free of crowds, traffic, and the myriad of distractions to be found everywhere else, including cricket, as long as no more cricketing words sneak into his head. David knows, deep down, that playing cricket is still a step too far for him. On Saturday, his body had felt ready, even though his mind was still all over the place, but his body had let him down. The utter weariness he'd felt when Brendan came round proved that. On Saturday, he'd raced into the red zone with his head down, watching his footsteps and nothing much else until he stumbled upon the ghost house and wrecked himself. What better way of slowly easing himself back into the world than by focusing on one simple objective, one single object, One old house. Even he should be able to manage that, as long as he doesn't rush in the way he did the other day. So, today he plans to start off slowly and with a purpose. For a few moments, though, David stands in one spot in the zone, turning in a full circle, taking it all in. It isn't the slightest bit like a dead zone, he thinks. It's not even red. There are rises and falls, 
twists and turns, open spaces, closed and secret spaces, trees, coppices, shrubberies, colours, scents, and reaching across everything still, the faint noise of bees. Unless his ears are still playing up, it wouldn't be the first time. Today, David becomes properly aware of all this variety for the first time, and today it finally sinks in that here is a kind of lost world on his doorstep, a world he can get lost in. His purpose feels somewhat blunted when he realises that he isn't exactly sure in which direction to go in order to arrive at the old house. He has a vague sense of where it is, but other than that it could be anywhere. It's frustrating especially at the moment when he approaches a battered old van parked half on, half off one of the red zone's broken footpaths, as if it might otherwise have been in somebody's way, as if wheels blocking a red zone road or footpath mattered a great deal any more. Once upon a time, the van might have belonged. Now its dented, garishly painted body looks alien in the landscape. David could have sworn the vehicle wasn't here before, so he's either going the wrong way or the van is parked up there since the weekend. Washing is strung on a line running between the van and a nearby lamppost, and there's a horribly strong open sewer kind of smell coming from somewhere close by. David has to pass by the van if he's going to follow the route he thinks he took yesterday. So he steps quickly past it and the smell, making for the swathe of green opposite, hoping no one is going to suddenly slide open one of the van doors and yell at him for having stared at it. Gone for the day, probably, a boy says. Someone you know? David hadn't noticed the woman wheeling herself down the centre of the road. While she pauses to speak to him, her small dog darts to and fro, sniffing at the margins. David comes to a stop. No, he replies. I've just seen it for the first time myself. Freedom camper, I'd say. They turn up round here sometimes. Must have managed to bypass the blockade at the end of the street. Goodness knows how. I have trouble getting past in my chair. Get out of that. David is as startled as the pooch he's yelling at. It scuttles quickly back to its owner, tail between its legs. The woman tuts and reaches for her cell phone, at the same time wrinkling her nose. Nothing against freedom, campers, she says, if they respect common decency. But some have a tendency to fail the place, which gives the rest of them a bad name. Get a whiff of that. I'll buzz the city council. Ask if someone can come and have a word with this one and get them to tidy up their leavings. David nods, but the woman is too focused on her call to notice. So he plods on, hoping he's going in the right direction and that he won't step into the mess the woman's dog nearly stuck its nose into. The direction feels right. That's as much as he can say. While on Saturday the red zone seemed deserted, today it's unexpectedly busy. First the van, then the woman and her dog, then another woman pushing a pram, followed by a couple of older people zigzagging across the red zone, 
as if they're looking for something they've lost. Finally, a cluster of people, a mix of young and old, who, given the way they stay loosely bunched together, might be part of a walking group. They're all at a distance. (laughs) David never feels he has to reach for his mask until after he's angled briskly towards a distant cluster of greenery, hoping it will turn out to be the clump protecting the ghost house, and he nearly collides with two people busy at work. Wooden stakes have been hammered into the ground to form the boundary of a large rectangle. A man is just finishing linking up the stakes with thin rope, while a woman is slicing away squares of turf from within the staked-out area. David steps back smartly, fixing on his mask. Mum would be proud of him, he thinks wryly. She's trained him well. Sorry, he says, I didn't see you in time. Kiora, the man replies, straightening up. No harm done. We're outdoors and remote. Should be safe enough from the COVID's clutches here, I reckon. We can't be sure about that, the woman says. Not yet, anyway. One day, she sighs, as if that one day might still be a long way off. David decides the man is probably right about it being safe. He takes his mask off again, although he doesn't venture any closer. What do you say, time for a cup of tea? The man asks. That's what you ask me every five minutes, the woman laughs. Good thing you've got me around to do all the hard graft. Neither of us are spring chickens any more, says the man. Got to take things a bit slower than we used to. Speak for yourself. The woman spades up another square of weedy grass, adding it to the pile, building up beside her. She might not be a spring chicken, David thinks, but she still has plenty of muscle. His own arms tingle and flex. He wonders if he'd be able to do what she's doing. The man winks at David. He reaches for a thermos and unscrews the top, which doubles as a cup. We've got clean spare drinking vessels if you're thirsty for a cuppa, he says. David shakes his head. No thanks. He regrets that he didn't think to bring a water bottle. All he has is a chocolate bar. The man nods. Brought them for the others. Ha, this was meant to be a working bee, but we're the only workers who've turned up. The woman snorts. Call yourself a worker, old man, she says. Dream on. Unless you're one of those we've been expecting, the man asks David hopefully. No, I'm not. What is it you're doing? We're creating a garden, the man replies. I thought the gardens were all abandoned, David says. I mean... No houses, so no people to look after them. That's true enough, the man agrees. But this is the start of a new community garden, feeding the needy and all that. Late Friday afternoon, the city council gave us permission to use this bit of land. We're going to plant coomera next season, see if it takes off. But at this rate, it'll be winter before we get anything in the ground. The woman shakes her head. She winks at David too. Sure you don't want to lend a hand? The man asked David. Fit-looking young fellow like you? Gardening isn't really my thing, David says. Although he's tempted, he wants to get on. My mum loves gardening. Works at a garden centre too. I'll let her know. You do that. We'd love to have her on board. I saw some people back that way, David offers. A couple of them seemed a bit lost. 
They were wandering all over the place. Perhaps they're looking for you. The man shakes his head. Mm. The others know where we are. The ones you saw were foragers, the woman says. Hunters and gatherers. You get a lot of them these days. What with the app and all. What app's that? David is amazed. She knows anything about apps. He manages in time to stop himself from saying so, in case she feels insulted. Don't remember what it's called. The one that lets you find where the best foraging places are. The walnut trees, the old-style apples, vijoas and the like. All the stuff that people grew in their gardens. A lot of it's still alive and well in the red zone. I guess it is, David says, remembering the fruiting trees he saw on Saturday and the blossoming flowers. I just didn't think people would go hunting for it. I didn't know there was an app for it either. Foraging's what we used to do quite a bit of, the man says, back in the day, before Pākehā arrived. And as for permission to dig a garden, phew, we didn't need permissions from councils. The woman stops digging. Oh, for heaven's sake, old man, get back on track. Leave the boy alone. He doesn't want to hear about all that. She turns to David. Once he gets started, he's like a runaway train. David shrugs, unsure of what to say. He thinks he understands what the man's getting on, but the topic isn't one he knows a lot about, or at least hasn't given much thought to. Cricket, on the other hand. Who's talking, old woman? The man says. But you're right, as always. I'd better get on with the digging. You sure you don't want to stay and help? He says to David, who shakes his head. I can't, he says. I'm not foraging exactly, but I am looking for something. The old man raises bushy eyebrows, but doesn't question David further. Fair enough, but if you change your mind, you know where to find us. Apart from today, which is an extra, we'll be here. Well, we should be here, every Sunday, starting from next week. David nods, wondering whether or not to ask them if he's going in the right direction for the house, but he loses his nerve. Bye then, he says. Cheerio, mate. Nice to chat. Tell your mum that if she wants to join us, we'll welcome her with open arms. Chapter 10 David continues, heading for what he's decided is the most likely location of the house. The further he walks, the more far off the gathering of trees he's identified seems to become. They look as if they're retreating with every step he takes towards them, almost as if they're playing a game of catch me if you can. Perhaps the red zone is a little like a desert, a green one, where distances are deceptive and where things are never quite what they appear to be. A mirage? A dream? A ghost house? But, at last, he reaches the trees and the flowering shrubs and is relieved beyond belief that they are the right ones and that, after pushing through the now familiar gap, the old villa, with its grey weatherboards, is indeed still sitting squarely in the centre of the tight-knit ring. Although David didn't experience the earthquakes firsthand, only an occasional aftershock is felt these days, he's heard a lot about them, how they buckled the land like horses throwing their riders, like bears shrugging their massive shoulders. Their monumental power led to the eventual disappearance of so many houses in the red zone. Why has this one been spared? Is it damaged? 
And how badly? The house must be empty, abandoned. It has to be. But is it safe to go inside? Help me. Save me. It's a house. What can you do to help it? Save it. Clutching his phone for reassurance, David steps tentatively towards it. He climbs onto the creaking veranda. It creaks, but that's all. Nothing splinters or snaps beneath his feet. He lets the phone slide back into his pocket. He tries the front door. It doesn't snarl at him or try to bite. He turns around handle, which gently rotates. The door opens to his hesitant push. His stone throwing is forgiven. Enter. The house invites him. So David does. Even with the front door wide open, the hallway stays dim until David's eyes adjust to the altered light. The first thing he sees is a thick layer of dust, like sand on a beach, carpeting the wooden floorboards, motes sifting up and down in the air as the outside breeze stirs it up. The dust on the floor has whirly patterns in it, as if the wind has disturbed it in the past, and it's settled back nervously. On the right-hand side of the hallway, which runs the length of the villa from front to rear, a door leads to a front room, the one with the large bay window and the coloured glass. This door is open. David peers inside. The sun casts the rainbow colours of the glass onto the floor, but what draws David's attention is the pile of old grain sacks in one corner of the room. As well as the sacks, there is a rusty primer stove, two-use gas canisters, partially flattened, as if someone has stood heavily on them, an aluminium camping billy, some small shrunken potatoes, and an empty packet of rice. It seems a ghost house may not be entirely deserted, or, at least, may have been occupied recently. How long have these things been here? Months, weeks, or only a few days? How long does it take for dust to settle after being stirred? Not long, probably. Right now, he's sure there's no one here except him, but David isn't keen to hang around in case whoever else was, or still is, in the house returns. He takes a few steps backwards into the hallway. And there, David meets Angus. Wow, that was a surprise, wasn't it? I don't think I'd like to live in that house, or in the red zone. Next time we'll discover who Agnes is, a ghost or a real person. Goodbye, children. Happy reading. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.